Welcome to Amplified. We're the show that will help you take your message, whatever it may be, and get it out through social media, networking, and other marketing channels. Maybe even some that you've never thought of. Whether you're an organization, small or large business, or you just have the next positive message that's sure to go viral, you'll want to stay tuned this hour. Now, here's your host, Ken Rashawn. You know, it's kind of weird amplified here with Ken Rashawn when we have a Zoom call, Michael. It's not like it's a surprise what you look like or that you're coming on the show, but I just want to tell you something. We did have the Blue Men orchestrate that. That's why it's so poppy and it really has a great beat to it. Yeah, really big. That was a big, big sign on that they did for us. So we're really excited about that. You know, we could in the future have him have the guests turn, have their camera off. And so then when we introduce them, we're like, (laughs) 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 ta-da! Or if you'd worn the Darth Vader uh, uh, mask, that would have been pretty hot. True, true. (laughs) Well, let's, uh, let's introduce Michael and bring him on right away. Absolutely. I thought this time for fun, we're going to do it this way since we're visual. You actually get to see the book while I read his bio. So since the age of 19 years old, Michael Drew has become a leading book marketer in the publishing industry, propelling uh, over 75 books into national bestseller lists, including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the New York Times. And he's garnished over 1,000, 1,000 number one uh, ranking books on Amazon through his promote a book services. Michael heads a marketing agency that strives to build strong and real relationships with its clients and its audiences, increasing sales in a natural manner and maximizing the depth and longevity of those relationships through the Persona Architecture platform. Building programs, Michael has presented the Pendulum Theory on stage. Um, And for people like the Dalai Lama, Sir Richard Branson, and Stephen Covey, and uh, privately for the executive committee at the Franklin Covey, um, Michael also lives in Austin, Texas with his wife and beautiful little girl. She's adorable. (laughs) Howdy, Michael. Hey. So you're probably wondering why we called you here today. We've been hearing good things. And uh, every 40 years, we try and bring on a very special guest. So here you are. And then we have updated news. Not there are food, so one reason or the other. We we have updated news. It is now 102 New York Times bestsellers now. So he has moved up in the world. So you have garnished all those wages for just by putting them in. Absolutely. That's that's what we do. We, we, we just place it there, right? We garnish people's wages. It's like, you know, the underpants thumbs. Step one, collect underpants. Step two, step three, profit. It's just the way it works. <laughs> What a great recap of a great business plan strategy. So, Michael, <laughs> it was great seeing you are in the, uh, gosh, the Winter Circle Mastermind Cruise some, I guess, a year ago. And a big shout out to Roger, uh, Roger Salam, for putting all these great people together. I got to hear your presentation for the second time, CEO Space being the first time. <clears throat> and uh, I guess I'd like to start off with, uh, I guess, the creation of Michael Drew. However, the, 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 the growing up of Michael Drew is a different question. Um, you know, I'm actually a, a high school dropout. And uh, when I was 17, 18, going into 19, I, um, I grew up in Utah, but I was living in Washington State in the Aberdeen area, which is where um, Kurt Cobain actually lived and grew up. And I was able to have the, the choice and fortunate opportunity to be homeless under the same, under the same bridges that he was and got to see his uh, bridge art. Um, but when I was 19, I decided that I didn't need to be homeless. I was a little too smart for that. Um, 
I could make money other ways. Actually, when, between the age of nine to the 16, I started and ran my own company, a, a house cleaning company, made, don't tell the IRS, but a lot of money um, with a lot of employees. And um, so when I, I came back to Utah, uh, I actually started managing Burger King for a while and met my first wife. And yeah, I probably should get married at the age of 18 or 19. It's a little, little young for most, certainly for me. And, um, but the, the good news was that she was smart enough to, to, to inform me that I, she wouldn't stay with me if I kept managing a Burger King. So she made me get a diff- different job. And I, I got a job at a small uh, company in South Utah County called Executive Excellence, which was then a division of the Covey Leadership Center right before it merged with Franklin. And um, I was selling a magazine called Executive Excellence. And in like three months, I became the number three salesperson, which is really only significant because the number one, two, and then four and five salespeople had been there for five plus years and were simply renewing old subscriptions that they had for the most part. So I came in and was generating this new revenue. And then the merger between Franklin and Covey happened. Now, when that happened, the executive editor of the magazine, Ken Shelton, was basically gifted the magazine by Stephen R. Covey as payment for his ghostwriting of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. At least that's according to Ken. And so um, Ken came to me and said, hey, Mike, we're publishing all these great authors in our magazine. Why don't we start publishing their books? And as a young, naive 19-year-old, I'm like, yeah, let's do that. We can do that. And I set out to do that, and I failed miserably. But um, in that way, well, I didn't know what I was doing. So neither did Ken. We had good authors, good content. But the publishing industry is an industry, and there's um, ways things work and machinations and, and there's retail distribution and there's acquiring authors and there's book promotion and there are all these things that go into promoting a book. And um, I didn't know what they were and Ken didn't either. And so it was trial by fire. I had to go out and learn, but I was young enough and had the energy that I poured myself into that and really figured out how publishing worked. And at the end of about a year uh, of working at Executive Excellence, um, I got a job offer from a very prestigious publishing company out of Austin, Texas called Bard Press. Ray Bard is a legend in publishing. Um, he pub- he's published some of the biggest business books of all time. As an example, um, he published, uh, I, we brought this to him, but uh, about seven years ago, he published the biggest business book of the last decade, The One Thing by Gary Keller. Right? That's a book that, that we did, and that was a Bard Press book, but so was The Wizard of Ads by Roy H. Williams and that entire trilogy. So was um, the Little Black Book of Connections, Little Red Book of Selling by Jeffrey Gittimer. Um, I could go on and on, but Ray, in terms of his understanding of how uh, the, the book industry works, is a literal living legend in that space. And at the age of 20, I was hired and brought in to manage marketing and PR, and I was brought under his wing uh, and taught everything that he knows about publishing. So I was very fortunate. A few, you know, a few years later, when I was 25, um, Roy Williams and I were in New York at Book Expo America, and we were walking the streets afterwards, and he said to me, Michael, you know, the winners and the losers in life are determined when the teams are picked. And there are two teams that are essential for your success. The first are the team of people who select you to be on their team, and the second are those you select to be on your team. And as a very young man, I was very blessed and fortunate to have been picked, people, been picked by people like uh, Ray Bard, Roy Williams, Ivan Meisner, and beyond. I've been very, very fortunate to, to have learned from the very best in the industry. How'd you meet Roy? So Roy was actually my, my first best-selling author. Um, he was published by Bard Press. So Bard Press published it. And um, the first day on the job, uh, Ray Bard said to me, Michael, we publish business authors. What we want more, what they want more than anything else is to become a New York Times bestseller. What I want you to do is go figure out how the New York Times bestseller list works. 
And the book I want you to work on is Secret Formulas of the Wizard of Ads by Roy H. Williams. So I actually, it was night, I was uh, 20 and I just started calling. I literally called the people at the New York Times and say, how does your list work? And they laughed at me and said, we're not going to tell you, but, but keep calling and we'll, we'll stay friends. Did the same thing at the Wall Street Journal, did the same thing at USA Today. And, and at, back in the, uh, Business Week was a bestseller list that was being published as well. So I did that and everybody laughed at me, but everybody wanted to be friends with me. And I kept calling back. Um, as, a, as a side note um, that, that's somewhat related, the gentleman who used to compile the Wall Street Journal bestsellers list, Bob Hughes, is now on staff. He works for me. They, they switched over about a decade ago from human uh, compilation of the list to book scan covering it. And when that happened, because I had that friendship with Bob, as I do with all of the lists, Bob came to work for me. But uh, irrespective, um, the very first book I worked on was uh, Secret Formulas of the Wizard of Ads. And not knowing what I was doing, we way overkilled it. But that's fine, because we learned a lot within that process. And so what we did um, Roy, for, the, for those of you, for those of your audience that don't know who he is, is he's a living legend in advertising. Yes. He owns the fourth largest ad agency in North America for, for buying radio. I mean, he is it's one brilliant. of the most brilliant, if not most, the most brilliant marketers in the, in the marketplace <laughs> today. And at the time, back in the late '90s, this is how far back we go. And I've been in this industry now for 21 years. Um, but back in the late '90s, there was a, a radio group called AMPM. No longer exists. It got, it got picked up by uh, multiple different, or purchased by multiple different publishers. Ultimately, those um, radio stations are now owned by um, uh, iHeartMedia. But irrespective, um, Roy had negotiated a deal with them to be able to go out to all of their 200 radio stations over a couple of year period of time, and they bought 20, 30,000 copies of the book in exchange for Roy going out and and doing keynotes for those for those radio groups. But then what we did. Beyond that, there are about 10,000 radio stations in North America. And what we did, you have to consider this back in 99, we mailed out a copy of the book, an advanced copy of it, um, along with an offer that said to the radio station general manager, you know who Roy is, you know that he controls a massive amount of revenue that you want, um, and Roy has put together a program that will teach your sales reps how to sell more radio. If you buy 20 copies of the book and run 200 radio ads that promote the book, we'll give you a copy of this 12-tape training library. It was on VHS back then. Um, uh, uh, that's valued at uh, $50,000 in exchange for that trade. And we had over 110,000 stations that participated in that offer. Wow. Right, And so we were able to blow Roy up and, and be able to, to build uh, his platform and ultimately what became the Wizard Academy from from that initial launch and that is the wizard academy you speak of that you absolutely the wizard academy is a nonprofit business communication school in southwest austin it um if i could give a gift to anybody it would be to go to the wizard academy there is no one more brilliant than roy in marketing and advertising and copywriting there is no place better set up for having an experience that will allow you to take uh, what would be the equivalent of feeding from a fire hose of information and be, being able to actually assimilate it. There is no other place in uh, in marketing and business today that's anything close to the Wizard Academy. In fact, so much so that you name the marketer, someone like a, a Ryan Dice goes to the Wizard Academy all the time or uh, uh, Peter Diamandis or Ivan Meisner or you name the, the, the people, they go to the Academy to learn from Roy because there's no one who approaches Roy's brilliance and understanding um, how the human mind works, how the human psychology works, uh, and, and, and how to, to apply science 
in improving the efficacy and, and, uh, and effectiveness of your um, communication. Now, The Wizard of Ads, that was several series, though, wasn't it? There were three books, The Wizard of Ads, Secret Formulas of the Wizard of Ads, and Magical Worlds of the Wizard of Ads. Yes. So Barry Shore turned me on to them some four or five years ago, and I didn't connect the dots until, honestly, during the show. So here we are. (laughs) Epiphany is happening. And you actually start your book off with Epiphany. So talk to the audience about that Epiphany. Well, so what what you're referring to, back to the pendulum, right? Um, So... What happened was back in 2003, now we're, we're talking a long time ago, and a lot of what we talk about in Pendulum, you, you saw it at, at CO Space back like 2010, 2011, and we've, been, we, we've done it for a while. Um, we started doing the presentation for this around 2004. Um, so what I'm about to, to, to talk about may sound like a duh, like it, it's clear and obvious, but we were talking about social media before there was social media. We were mm-hmm. talking about the movement towards authenticity and transparency before those were catchphrases that everybody was using. Right. Right. I, I think everybody says, Oh, don't use the word authenticity. I'm like, yeah, I was using it 20 years ago. You know, it's <laughs> one of those things. Um, but what, what happened was Roy. Um, so Roy grew up in the, in the sixties and seventies and, and he was um, meeting with the professor uh, or the, the, the dean, dean of the psychology uh, department at university of Texas in Austin. And he said to uh, this gentleman, he said, you know, 2003 seems a heck of a lot like 1953, uh, 1963 only in reverse. And the, the dean of the psychology department said, well, yeah, you're kind of right. You know, there's some books that have been written on the subject um, by some various people, including Stress and How with Generations and Fourth Turning and Faith Popcorn and some other futures that have talked about this point. Um, and so Roy went out and picked up the books and had me do research with him and reading the books. And we, we went through it. And w- what we found is that we, we agreed um, with the position that these other authors had taken, but we, uh, in principle, but not in specifics. Um, because they, they all came up with exceptions that didn't make sense to us. And um, Roy's background theologically is he's, a, he's an evangelical, and his belief is based on his understanding of, of both Judaism and, and evangelicalism. And we knew that in, he knew in the Old Testament that and in, in Judaism that 40 years was a really important um, cycle that was mentioned dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament, let alone in, in, the, in the, the Jewish text as well. And so he said, well, let's challenge these assumptions. Let's, let's go back. Let's expand the, 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 both the timeline um, from what these other people were doing, but also let's not be U.S.-centric. Because what Strauss and Howe did, Faith Popper and others, they, they did U.S.-centric two to 300 years back in terms of the research. And what we know from a, a data standpoint is that you need at least 1,000 years, if not two or three or 4,000 years of data, and you need it from multiple different sources, not a single data point. And so we, we made the hypothesis that we believe that there was a cycle of moving from a 40-year cycle about me to a 40-year cycle of we, and we went back and we challenged it. What most, what good scientists do is they take their, their premise and they challenge it because nobody's better qualified to challenge your own assumption than yourself. If you go out to try to prove something, you'll always find the data points that prove what you're looking for because you'll exclude all the other data points. So we went out to disprove it. We did all of Western society, and we did 3,000 years of recorded Western civilization, not 300 years of American uh, civilization. And we did both a qualitative and quantitative set of research on this. And and what we found um, 
was that our hypothesis was not only right, but it was scarily right. We, we had made, we, we had, we, we believed it was a directional pattern, not a precise set of data. And what we found is that human beings are not unique snowflakes, at least in groups, we predictably do the same thing over and over and over and over again without fail. And so that was a little scary to us, but in terms of being, so there's two implications of this. One is the reason we did it was for business. And the other is the larger cultural implication of what those cycles mean. And so on the business front, we were able to define where, where we, we had been, how we got to where we are today and where we were headed. And based on that, we've been able to change and adjust the way that we create copy and create advertising and hire and fire employees and create products and services and all of those things uh, based upon that cultural movement uh, from me to we. And then as we move into we, um, we we're, we've, we've moved into our, and now are fully into a microcycle that we call the witch hunt cycle. And uh, we're going to be that in there for another uh, 12, 13 years uh, within that microcycle. But based on that, based on the values of culture and society, we know what we need and, and should be doing with our customers. So some of the things that we uh, learned early on was that the idea of a UVP, a unique value proposition, was a very me-cycled, me-centric ideology about what's your unique value proposition. In a we cycle, it's not about the individual, it's about the community, it's about the group as a whole. And so what we found is that statements of what you stand against are far more powerful than statements of what you stand for in a we cycle. Right. And in fact, regardless of your political uh, persuasion, um, I, in, in the last presidential election, and this is probably going to be true of this one as well, I knew very few people who stood for Hillary Clinton or who stood for Donald Trump. I knew a hell of a lot of people that stood against Hillary Clinton and a hell of a lot of people that stood against Donald Trump. Right. Because standing against is part of the cultural value that we have in today's we cycle and in, and in the witch hunt. And so what we look at then is the uh, from a business standpoint, the replacements of what worked in a me cycle with things that work in a we cycle. So some things like in a me cycle, it's about push. In a we cycle, it's about pull. In a me cycle, it's about seduction. In a we cycle, it's about intimacy, right? In a me cycle, it's about the individual. In the we cycle, it's about community. So we look at what are the value sets that work in today's me cycle or we cycle and how we can use those to improve the, the marketing communication that we use. So as an example, one of the things you read in the bio was the use of persona architecture. Well, the idea of persona architecture is to understand the, the movement of different groups of, of your customer base. And you have to be able to do that at a very deep and intimate level. Otherwise, you're dealing with, with, um, you're dealing with data points that are only high level, but not about the motivation of the individual. Uh, the example that I Michael, can you give an example of of a company that's doing a we right now that's um, that's being successful and maybe a, a me that's not being or you know what what are you seeing well, in the industry? So there, there, there's, there was a really obvious one. Um, there was this company that we all went to. The three of us went to because we're old enough. Every Friday night because we wanted entertainment for ourselves and our family, and we had to get there early enough to get the latest movies because what we didn't want to have at Blockbuster was to have someone else get those movies um, before we got there. Right. So right. Blockbuster was a very me based uh, business model that, that did not shift or change with the cultural, both the technology and the cultural shifts in society. And so when Netflix came out, do you remember what their original, what, what their original promise was? It was really, don't. you don't have to wait for your movie. 
No. <laughs> right? Really, 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 really simple. You don't have to wait for your movie because they'll send it to you every week without, without a problem. And so what, so when you look at, at the business models, it, one was come to us, the other was we're going to go to you, right? And so the, the messaging of Netflix that put them out, uh, that put Blockbuster out of business was um, we stand against waiting to watch your movie. We stand against return fees. We stand against having to stand a line for, like they stood against a bunch of things. They didn't have to say what they stood for because it was clear and obvious what they stood for by the, the clarity of what they stood against. And they literally put out of business two major companies, Hollywood Video and Blockbuster Video, with a promise of what they stood against, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's lots of examples of Tom's and, and uh, Tom Shoes and, and other, organiza uh, other organizations that have statements of what they stand against, things that are, are part of the cultural norm and cultural movement into we from me. You look at Zappos as an example. Tony did the the, the forward for the book, right? Mm -hmm. um, Tony Shea. Um, well, yeah, Michael, before you yep. go to next point, I was curious uh, about several things. So with technology kind of expediting most things in life, this, this mm -hmm. pattern of the pendulum is not expedited. And then uh, part two and three is what causes and why does it have to happen every time? So it's a really good question. It's one we're asked all the time. Um, is it possible that technology could disrupt or change the, the cultural movements of me and we within the picture? The, the technical answer is it's possible. However, I'm gonna ask you a, a separate question. What had greater impact on the world? Gutenberg or the personal computer? Well, personal computer. It's an arguable point. It because, is. Because yes. before Gutenberg, you didn't have right. any mass production. Communication was very low, and you could very easily argue on the other side. You're right. Right? Um, what we've seen historically, so one of the things that we look at in Pendulum um, is the, it, it's, a, it's a psychological, physiological movement, but technology is part of that. Art is part of that. What we do as human beings is a reflection of this movement. See, what happens is human beings always take a good thing too far, right? We, but the, the, the question is, does technology change the human? That's the actual question. Has technology changed the way that we think and act and, and at, a, at a very core physiological level? So one of the things that we would point out is that the way that we eat, the way that we process food is the same as it was from the, foundation, from the beginning of the first man. We don't process food any differently today. Our stomachs and our digestive systems are any different than we, than we did uh, 20,000 years ago. It's, a, it's the same system. And we would argue that the physiology, the psychology of the human being hasn't changed, hasn't been influenced at that level by technology either. Now, is it possible? Sure. But the only way that we'll ever know that is a thousand years from now, looking back with enough data points, right? There's not, there, 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 there is no current widespread um, illustration or example of us being, that technology is changing the, 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 the pendulum swing, right? We are, in a, we are in a witch hunt cycle and all technology is doing is, um, is spreading it faster. It's making it bigger than it might have otherwise been. But I don't see 
Democrats or Republicans in today's marketplace or or libertarians or independents coming together in a way that creates unity uh, and cohesiveness that's that 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 is about everybody. It's my group's good, your group's bad, right? We don't see we don't see the the witch hunt being muted. We see it being enhanced, right? And so historically, and I would argue the same thing here. Technology only only amplifies. It doesn't change the human being. Now, could we argue at some point in the future that we could have implants and other things that could change human beings in a, in a substantive way? Sure. We're just I not- have a theory that our arms will be shorter because we only need to be like this. We type like this. We take pictures like this. And we're on our but phone we're like this. We're like so the we'll T-Rex and right? Yep. <laughs> uh, but but, but my, my point is that, that it's a good question. Is it possible? Yes. Do we see any evidence of that? No. We don't. The, the example would be we're in a witch hunt uh, mini cycle right now. If we were to see the, the technology change that shift into that, then it would be people fighting against that and stopping it. But we don't see that. We only see an amplification of what was already projected, what we already, so, what we already so, so the person that wants to win the next elect, uh, election needs to have the understanding of the MeWe cycle so that they actually speak the correct language to win because they're speaking the incorrect language. They're already pushed out of it. Correct. Correct. Okay. And then, uh, so what is the period of time? Are we talking 1980 is the reflective time of our time right now? And is COVID related to anything that could have been predicted? Um, well, I mean, we've been predicting pandemics for a long time. So mm-hmm. certainly there's been a broad prediction on pandem- pandemics. It's been since the Spanish flu sensibly. Uh, and certainly we had uh, other uh, viruses from China that gave us the idea that, that it would come. I, I don't believe that the, the virus is um, cyclical based, meaning I don't think it's based on, on pendulum. I think it's based on uh, the, the size of the population that's massively increasing every every day. But the, to, to, to ask the question about cycles, the, the last knee cycle started in 1963 and it ended in 2003. So we call it pendulum because you swing up and then you swing down. So 63, 73, 83, right, just like that. So right, you get to the height, whatever that height is. So this case is 2003. So 2003 was, um, well, actually, so it was, we're going up 20 years and down. So it would have been 73, 83, 93, 2003, and then we begin the we cycle. So 2013, 2023 is the height. So that's also the height of the witch hunt cycle. Uh, uh, 2033, 2043 before we get back into me. So it swings up and down in that, in that capacity. So the, the, the value set of the of 63 to 2003 is distinctly different than the value, the value sets of 2003 to 2043. So why didn't they talk to the Olympic committee or something? So it could have been even numbers like zeros and fours. And, and why was Jesus three? Oh, was, Jesus was three years old and they could speak. And then he went, me and that's kind of how it all did. <laughs> well, the, so so if we go to the Bible, um, you, you want to look at um, the movement of of groups. So so better example because Jesus would have been around thirty three when when he was crucified, somewhere between thirty three and thirty six, depending on who you want to talk to uh, within <laughs> one within one cycle. Um, but Moses would be a better example because the life expectancy back then was longer. The, the um, story of Moses was told in 40-year increments. Mm-hmm. So as an example, um, Moses was kicked out of Egypt. Do you remember what he was kicked out for? 
challenged an authority? He killed an Egyptian slave master who killed a Hebrew slave. Now, at the time, he was the prince of Egypt. His his adopted mother um, was the was mm. the sister to right. the pharaoh, and so he wasn't executed for it. He was cast out to be the kings of the scorpions and, and the snakes, mm. and um, and so he was forty years old when that happened. Most people don't don't realize that the 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 way he presented himself. He was strong of tongue, strong of opinion, strong of, 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 of body. And it was all about him, what he thought was best. When he returned, he was 80. So 40 years later. So he left a strong individualist and he, he came back to do what? Unite. Yeah, to free the people, right? Yeah. To, to, so he left an individualist, came back as a community organizer. And he changed so much in those 40 years that he no longer could talk. He stuttered, right? Aaron had to be his, his mouthpiece. Right. And so then he freed the Israelites. And then for worshiping a false gold calf, the Israelites were punished for how many years to allow a generation to die off? I'll go with 40. 40 I, yeah. That's what I thought it was 42. But right. I don't so, so it's, it's, no, 40. it's not 42. It's, it's 40. 40. Right. It was yeah. a flat, it was a flat 40. <laughs> yes, allow, Ken, 40 also. 40 also. also yes. <laughs> to, to, allow, to allow a generation to, to die off. And of course, uh, the the purpose of Moses was uh, as it would be for for um, for Abraham and, and Isaac um, and later uh, David was as a representation of, of Jesus right to 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 project what what would happen in the life of of, of, of Jesus himself so um, there's I mean there's a lot of that's why for Roy and I when we look back at the Old Testament and and Jewish text forty was such an important number. So you could certainly look at it in, in, in that context. But where we are now is we're in the middle of the we and we're in the middle of the witch hunt cycle and it's only going to get worse. And the only way, the only way for things to get better, interestingly enough, there, there is precedent for some witch hunt cycles not being as bad as others. But let me, let me give you context. 80 years ago in Europe, we had Mussolini, Stalin and Hitler, the same time frame. In the United States, we had Joseph McCarthy, and the Red Scare, and we had Japanese intern camps. 80 years before that same time frame, we had the Civil War and the Second French Revolution. 80 years before that, we had the, Ameri the first American Revolution, uh, or the American Revolution, the first uh, French Revolution, the, um, the, the Salem Witch Trials, um, the Spanish Inquisition, um, all of the Crusades, all happened in, uh, it, it, at the height of the, or in the, in the witch hunt cycle. Every single well, speak, one. Speaking of uh, being at the height of things, we are going to end the generation of the first half hour and go to break. And we are uh, here on Amplified with Ken Rashawn with our guests, Michael Drew, and we'll be back after these messages. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. The Umbrella Syndicate amplifies good causes, good people, and good messages. They offer a suite of services that help people and businesses gain better exposure. Through working with the Umbrella Syndicate, you gain the ability to reach an audience of 50,000 unique people a week. They have recently reached over 20,000 followers on Facebook. You can view their photography and how they use it as a strong promotional tool on their Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash the Umbrella Syndicate. Show them your support by liking their page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America.
This is Amplify. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. We also would love to hear from you via email to info at umbrellasyndicate.com. Now, back to Amplify. And we're back with Amplified with Ken Rashawn. Uh, Ken Rashawn, your host. Um, he's also the sponsor with uh, the Umbrella Syndicate. And we have our other sponsor, the Keep Smiling Movement, which we both love. And all of you do as well. And Big Events USA, the Red Carpet Connection. Of course, Voice America Influencer Channel. And a special shout out to the Winner Circle, Roger Salam, and CEO Space for introducing us to wonderful people like Michael Drew, who is our guest today. You know, Michael, the only reason you got on the show is because of your smile. It's just too good. (laughs) (laughs) You have a beautiful heart. I I always say when I saw you for the second time uh, in the winter circle, well, you really put your heart into a presentation and to educate people and to give them every chance really to have wisdom to make better choices and enjoy their life more. So God bless you for that. Thank you. You know, one of my clients is uh, Garrett Gunnarsson. He was a company called Wealth Factory, and he's a financial expert. And he introduced me to a concept uh, back in 2006 called Soul Purpose, S-O-U-L Purpose, um, which we I, I fully and firmly believe in and follow, but also work with our clients on, um, which is the belief that each and every one of us is born with a soul purpose. And that soul purpose isn't for you at, in terms of serving you, but rather it's bestowed upon each of us in the service of each other. And my sole purpose is to help people find their voice, test and refine their voice, and ultimately share and amplify their voice. And to do so requires me to be a safe place to, to share voice and also to be able to hear and listen. And I, I, it, I think like anything else, it takes work and effort, but it, it is something that I firmly believe in and, and work diligently to implement. Uh, well, thank you for giving a shout out to Amplify, because I mean... The Amplify Voices. <laughs> and that's our mission too with the Keep Smiling Movement. Um, I guess one thing that I feel like was not completed in our pendulum conversation now that I realize is how does one benefit from this information that you just shared in the first segment to apply it to 2020, for instance? Well, so as an example, I gave, I gave a clear example, which was we've, we've for our clients, replaced UVPs with statements of what, we, of what they stand against. And what I'll tell you is when you do that, you will see a minimum increase in your conversion of 20%. I don't have a single client that didn't see an instant and immediate um, increase in conversion of 20% to what they're doing. We have a radio group up in Ontario that started, their ads started saying, we won't play this artist and this artist and this artist and this artist. And their listenership went up, right? Because they started saying who they weren't going to be playing. So that would be, would be, would be one. Another is to be a student of, human persuasion, which is why we go to the Wizard Academy, because Roy does a lot of a, lo- a lot of that research and work. But you want to become a student of your customer. In a me, it's about the individual. In a we, it's about the community. So in a me, the value sets are, I'm going to push you as an individual to be bigger and better than who you are. And I can talk about that in the, the construct of the individual. But when, we, when you move into we, then you need to understand not just the individual, but the group um, confines of, of how things work, right? You, you need to learn how to go from communication in an intimate environment to communication in a non-intimate environment. Selling is done in an intimate environment, one-to-one or one-to-few. Marketing and advertising then is always done in a non-intimate environment, one-to-many. And in order, but, but the rule set 
of what works in an intimate environment still works in that non-intimate environment. So this is why we've applied, we've learned and applied the models of persona architecture by Brian Jeffrey Eisenberg. This is why we have replaced um, pickup artist douchebag sales funnels with what we call the 12 steps of intimacy because for our customers who are in the business of influence, who are in the business of, of thought leadership, to be a pickup artist, uh, to be transactionary, in, in other words, would violate um, the intimacy they need to have. You see, if you're in the business of influence, you're a business therapist at some level, right? You're dealing with the psychology of the individual. And none of us on this call, nobody who's watching this would ever go online go to a squeeze page, opt in for a therapist, right? It would violate the beliefs that we have with a therapist in the, in the traditional sense. But if somebody hires me to do book marketing, I'm still a therapist. I might be a book marketing therapist, but I'm still a therapist. I'm still dealing with the heart and soul of the individual and why they're, why they're doing that book. When, when you're getting someone to smile, you're dealing with their, um, with their authentically sharing their heart. That's not a, a simple request. It's, it, it may sound like a simple request, but for someone to genuinely give at that level is a really big request. And so the value set that worked in the me cycle about push, about transaction, about um, seduction was beautiful then, but it's not what, what culture and individuals want. Now we want intimacy and relationship. And so we've now moved into the what we call the 12 steps of intimacy. And the, I, the idea there is that, Again, I, I put the transactional marketers in the pickup artist front. In fact, um, the, when talking to pickup artists about what, what they do versus what um, the transactional marketers do, um, or the, what we call direct marketers, it's the same thing. They're doing the exact same thing, only one's in marketing advertising to get into their customer's pants to pull out their wallets, the other is to get laid, right? But the process is exactly the same. And while... It could be fun to have a one-night stand. It could be fun to a certain degree to be objectified. Most of us don't want to be objectified most of the time, which is what the, the direct response markers are doing, is that they're objectifying their audience. And the, the reason they do that is that they don't know any better. Their belief is, if I don't get the sale now, if I don't get laid now, it's never going to happen. When in reality, if you're an influencer, if you're a thought leader, if you're in the business of, of therapy at any level, psychology at any level, you, you're your requirement is to build a relationship with your customer. And so in understanding that and understanding that we had this movement from me to we, Roy and I did the research to be able to figure out what model was best for relationship building. And that was based on the work of Desmond Morris, a zoologist and clinical researcher from the late 1950s and 1960s, when there was a genuine question about the nature of the homo sapien primate being either, a, were we, are we a promiscuous species or a pair-bonded species of primate? And so he answered that question. But, what, but the result of that, of his work, was that he, he went very deep, is he researched to find out what created long-term intimacy and long-term partnerships with parties versus short-term uh, versus short-term relationships. And what he found at the core of it all was that there are these 12 fundamental steps of intimacy that must be followed. And if you skip- And that's because of the zodiac signs, right? No. 
<laughs> no, but I love what you're sharing, Michael, because I, I don't know if you know about this about me, but I own a intimacy and relationship business as well. And so uh, my dissertation work was all in this way. So all the things that you're sharing with uh, anthropology and other um, fields that have been studying um, intimacy and sexuality for so many years, you know, the different stages of this um, go along with um, uh, how people meet, how, they con- how they're congruent. So please share more. Well, wait, Michael, before you do. So first of all, as a host, I'll tell you that normally if there's 12 steps, I'll say, give me step number six I'll, and I'll keep you guessing. And, and, uh, and, uh, and then the audience gets so much more value because they don't know what's going to hit them next. But in all seriousness, we don't have enough time to probably do the 12. And as you stated earlier, we need 12 hours to do all 12 anyway. But um, we do like to go to rapid fire. And so could you surmise the 12 in maybe eight minutes? I think, did we have time for that? Is that eight minutes fine, right? Eight. Eight would be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, so. see, let's see if I can do it even shorter. Look, the, 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 the 12 steps represent what we do naturally, right? We, we, we all know each other. We've all met. We've all hung out. And what everyone on this call knows and everyone that's watching this, this, this podcast knows is that when you're in a live environment with someone, we change how we talk right? We change our posture. We change the tonation, the speed to which, yes, you can look. look, look. Um, but but we, we do that naturally, right? Because that's what human beings do. But what's important is in business, unless you, you're exclusively sales-based, meaning one-to-one sales, of which they teach this on a personal basis, you have to apply what we do naturally in an intimate environment in that non-intimate environment. Right, and so marketing, like every bit of advertising, is always done in a non-intimate, non-intimate environment. TV, radio, print, Facebook, Google, Twitter, LinkedIn, like it's all non-intimate. But what we have to do, even this is intimate for us. The reason why podcasting like this works is if that the audience members see us engaging, and they can put themselves in our shoes and it somewhat emulates intimacy. It's not actually intimate, but it emulates intimacy. So they're more accepting of what we're doing, but we, we have to recognize even with that, that the depth of intimacy is very different than if we were one-on-one with, with that same audience member. Right. And right. so what, what we have to look at is the, the understanding that you as a human being do things naturally in that uh, interpersonal engagement. What the 12 steps of intimacy does is it forces you to remember the things that you intuitively do to make sure that you're doing them in that um, in a non-intuitive environment, right? There's, there is no intuition in a, in a TV ad or radio ad or, or a LinkedIn ad, right? We can make assumptions, but they're, they're going to be part of – they have to be part of a bigger sequence. And so the value and the use of the 12 steps is to humanize what you're doing in marketing and advertising to remember that your customer are people. Right, they're not they're not clicks, they're not impressions, they're not opt-in rates, they're not conversions, they're people. And when you're dealing with a person, you have to treat them like a person. Otherwise, you objectify them and now you're a pickup artist. And so the point and purpose of the 12 steps is to help you as, as an individual remember and apply the things that you naturally do without thought, thoughtfully in your marketing and advertising. And as part of that, one of the important things to remember, and I, I don't need to go to the 12 steps, if, if you just remember th- th- this core fact, building a relationship has to be equal, right? I have to deposit in the relational bank account and you have to deposit in that relational bank account. 
And there are four kinds of currency that we, that we deposit. In an interpersonal relationship, it's time, energy, information, and emotion, right? And in a business context, it's time, energy, information, and money, right? Those are all different currencies. And if you and your audience simply ask this question, where am I in this relationship with this person? And what currency am I asking them to deposit in the relationship account? And what currency am I giving to them? And am I asking too much currency from them or giving them too much currency, right? We've all had the experience of being in a relationship where if you give more than the other party, the relationship doesn't work. If they give more than you, the relationship doesn't work. It has to be, has to be an equal ebb and flow. And so you have to ask what currencies are being exchanged. Is it the appropriate amount? Is it too much? Is it too little? And is it going both ways, right? That's, that, that's what's important. I'll, I'll give you the first few um, steps of intimacy just to illustrate the point. So step one in Desmond Morris's world was eye to body. I see a beautiful woman. I make a judgment. Am I interested or am I not interested, right? The only thing that that woman controls at a club, a bar, at an event or whatever else is how she presents herself, right? What is she wearing? How is she holding herself? How, how does she look when she's presenting herself to someone else? She doesn't know that I or someone else is, is looking at her. All she can do is control how she presents herself. That's, that's exactly what happens in advertising, right? Every form of advertising is step one. If you're being seen in a medium that you do not control, you're, you're the, the woman being, you're the woman or the man at the club event or, or bar that's being seen from a distance that doesn't know that they're being that they're they're being seen, right? And so with that, you have to ask the question: How are you presenting yourself, right? Because there's a snap judgment. It's quick. It's a small amount of information, a small amount of time that the customer is is looking at you and saying, "I'm interested or not." If they see you on TV, if they see you on radio, if they see you in print, if they see you on a Google result, based on what they what they put in, what is that single experience that they're having with you that you don't control? Right. So that's step one. Step two is eye to eye. This is the idea of where flirting comes in, right? In the real world. So I see the beautiful woman, the beautiful woman sees me. Because I don't have the um, the relation relational bank account with her, I can't look at her for very long. So I have to look at her and then look away. She's looking at me, right? That's the, the back and forth of flirting because it's a micro engagement between the two parties to see if there's synergy and interest. Now I can look at, the, at each of you in your eyes for a certain amount of time, but even with, with you, Ken, I can only look at you in your eyes for a short period of time before it gets creepy, right? Because we have a relational bank account, but I can overextend that, right? Whereas I can look at my mom for, in her eyes for a very, yes. <laughs> for, for very long, for a very long period of time because we have that deeper um, uh, relational bank account. And so, I, again, I'm bringing these, these first couple of steps up to kind of illustrate um, the exchange of the different kinds of currencies. So I wouldn't go from flirting with a woman to walking up to her and kissing her, right? If I did that, she'd probably smack me, right? And rightfully so, because I'm skipping steps of intimacy so, so that your audience knows uh, step eight would be uh, in interpersonal would be kissing. So if I go from flirting to kissing, I'm going to get smacked. And if I don't get smacked, if I don't get smacked, what is the woman communicating to me? That at least you're in the safe zone. Well, she, that, that she wants a transaction, right? It's not, it's not, you don't, you don't go. From- <laughs> She's interested and you've opened the door and you might be able to push farther. <laughs> but, but, but not, you're right. But, but if, 
if I skip to eight from two, it's too big of a jump. So it's yeah, not a makes- it's not an emotional intimacy connection. It's a it's a one night stand connection. It, it's a yeah. transactional <clears throat> connection. And that's not to say that that can't be fun. But but according to the work of Desmond Morris, and this is true in marketing as well. If you skip more than one step, the probability of that being a long-term relationship is less than 3%. Oh, by the way, that's a good direct response. Conversion rate is 3%. Right. I mean, we, we can do the comparisons all day. But if you want that long-term intimacy, you don't go from flirting to kissing. It's disrespectful to your customer. Right. The next natural thing would be to go up and talk because now we're going to exchange information ideas. If, I, if there's a beautiful woman that I flirt with and I walk up to her and she's dumber than a rock, I'm sorry. I don't care how pretty she is. I'm not going to be interested anymore, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, we go through these steps as as a, a way of validating and, and exchanging informa- uh, um, currency in the building of that relationship. And if your audience would would just ask the question, is it appropriate for me to ask for this much information? Again, step one, all you, all you can do is present yourself. If you ask your customer to do anything, you're asking too much, right? You have to let them make that decision. Right. Whereas later down the process, if you're in the makeout phase, well, you better be engaging too, because you know both parties need to be engaged. Or you're going to turn the other party off. So, right. Really, the, 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 the simplistic way to look at the twelve steps is to ask your, the, the question: What relationship do I have now? What is appropriate to ask? What am I investing, and in? where are they investing back in? And is that appropriate at, at this at this stage of the relationship? Mm-hmm. Okay. So first of all. I challenge you. This seems like a complete copy of the zodiac signs, so I don't see why that's not that wasn't relevant. I, I was vulnerable. You shut me down, and kind of hurt a little bit. And I thought this was going to have and some the Leo, relevance. by the way. <laughs> well, I thought this was going to have more relevancy to Mister Underpants' business plan, and I don't really see that connection either. So, so um, people, there, there are lots of models in the world, right? Um, there's Zodiac, there's Myers-Briggs, there's a lot of personality typing systems. And I, I think that those are really important um, models to use in understanding your customer. I, 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 I like to layer things. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was talking about with personas is that um, demographics by themselves are insufficient. That tells you about someone. Like, I, you could say you, you have a Zodiac sign, but you're not a Zodiac sign. You're a bunch of other things on, on top of that as well. You're right? taking so me seriously? <laughs> yes. Right. So it's it's a layering it's a layering of those things that create the personality. What the, the persona architecture? Um, there was a, a book t- titled "Steal Like an Artist," and and the Eisenbergs kind of stole like an artist. They they borrowed from Hollywood, and in Hollywood, um, what they do uh, when creating stories based on character arc. And by the way, character arc is where all the the movies win Academy Awards. The the story arcs are all the the action movies to go from point A to point B, and they almost never win an Academy Award unless it's for um, you know, graphics or something. Um, but story arc is when you have multiple characters, like the three of us on this call can have, we, we all have our, our own personalities. We all have our own personality character arc. And in a story, it's where we meet and where conflict arise that the story, the, the story the, that, that you have a story. So what they do in Hollywood is they create, they, they create all of the characters first and they create their entire backstory. So they know everything about them and they know, um, how they got to the point where they were at the beginning of the story so that when they create the conflict or contrast with, between characters in the storyline, they know why that's happening, mm-hmm. right? Because, because of what's happened in the past. And so they can, they can work with and work through that. In marketing, it's the same thing. If you can map out your customer journey, right? 
then you can speak to the customer in the language of the customer about what's important to the customer. So that's why we use persona architecture with the 12 steps because we'll create the what we call the buyer personas, three to five of them for our customers, and then we'll, we'll put them on a 12 steps journey. Individually, each one of them will go on a different journey because the way that they think, the way that they act, their needs are very different one from another. Right, for and I'm going to jump in here yeah. because we're going to play Flash Gordon and leave at a cliffhanger and go into rapid fire. <laughs> well, and, and the first question, just to make sure we get this in, is how do people connect with you and get more information about this? Well, I'll, I'll do a couple things. I, I will, um, if you're okay with it, I'll send you a, a white paper for you to share with your audience on um, the 12 steps of intimacy okay. so that they can go into uh, more depth. Um, our website is um, uh, promotebook.com for books and for marketing. It's profluent.com. Um, my email is michael at promotebook or michaelprofluent.com. I keep it kind of simple. Okay. Uh, so we got some quick questions for you. Really quick because we're down to a minute or so. So a book that changed your life? Uh, the Wizard of Ads. Okay. Andrea? What is the song that gets you jazzed up? Um, you, you Are Not Alone. A movie that you have to watch during COVID. Oh, the entire Star Wars trilogy, uh, uh, nine movie set, okay. plus plus Solo, plus um, Rogue One. Andrea? Uh, superhuman um, quality you'd like to have? Uh, uh, invisibility. Okay, quote you live by. Uh, the risk of insult is the price of clarity. All right. Well, Michael, you're awesome. Unfortunately, an hour goes by too quickly with you. And... Uh, our sponsors are, of course, the Key Smiling Movement, the Red Carpet Connection. And thank you so much for taking such a deep dive and giving us really a wealth of information and wisdom. And uh, next time, hopefully, we'll have you on to talk more about Captain Underpants because we never got time to do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been amplified. Thank you so much. I hope uh, off, the, off the show that we can actually convince you to do a Key Smiling book because you cost so many smiles in the world. Happy to, of course. Okay. Well, well, glad to hear that. All right. We'll be back next week and you have been amplified. Have a wonderful week. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Amplified. Be sure to join Ken Rashad again next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern time and 8 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now go get your message heard.